Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at our favourite films of 2018. And you'll also be hearing from some special guests, some of the 2018 Myth Critics Campus alumni, as well as sharing our film diary. Because there were so many interesting stories in films in 2018, which is leading to an unpredictable race for rewards, we're going to dive straight in. Battle rap is a street fight. You got someone right in your face trying to tear you apart. I don't know if I should slap you like a bitch or punch your face like a man. Because I keep switching from open palm to a fist like a white boy shaking your hand. Actual G's, you ain't kill none. So shut the fuck up and chill some. Just because you look like Kim Jong-un doesn't mean you're ill, son. You have some creative Asian jokes. You, you think? Yeah, at least you knew I was Korean. As far as I'm concerned, that's culturally sensitive by battle rap standards. Uh, Okay, so my number five of 2018 is Bodied, the American comedy directed by Joseph Kahn. Uh, Kahn's probably most well-known as a prolific music video director. Um, He's made music videos for, like, all of American musicdom, including Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, Dr. Dre, like, everybody. Um, So he's sort of firmly ensconced in the American popular music scene at a time when it's so dominant. Um, American music is, I would argue, where all sort of the major or many major American pop culture conversations are happening. Probably, I would say, far more so than around Hollywood, for example. So anyway, he's at the centre of all of that. And he's had this spotted film directing career along the side. Um, His debut was that uh, interesting film, Talk, that motorbike racing film from about 15 years ago. Do you remember? It's like Need for Speed, but with motorbikes. Um, And the Kiwi actor, Martin Henderson, is in it. Anyway, Anyway, that's enough of the context. Bodied (laughs) is a rap battle comedy drama. Um, So Callum Worthy stars as Adam, a sort of nerdy white guy who's writing his graduate thesis on the uses of the N-word in rap battles. And as part of his research, he attends a rap battle, then unexpectedly gets thrust into it, Um, and finds himself gaining all of this acclaim in the rap battle arena. Uh, So he starts off, one of his first opponents is a Korean-American rapper named Prospect, uh, and Adam sort of strains to spew out sort of inoffensive lines that deliberately ignore Prospect's race, um, but he bombs. But he finds that if he abandons that genteel Berkeley approach to go personal and vicious, he's increasingly lauded. The crowd loves it. So the film sort of brilliantly establishes this juxtaposition between the extremely white, privileged, self-aware and very mannered world of Berkeley and the ostensibly uh, anything-goes world of the rap battle scene. Uh, but Cannes sort of too clever to rely solely on stereotypes. He cleverly and I think quite scathingly subverts our expectations about each of these characters um, and their milieus from which they come. It's laugh out loud funny. It's also deeply uncomfortable. Uh, and it's full of just wonderful details. You know, Adam has a Bernie Sanders 2016 sticker on his laptop. Um, when video of one of his performances leaks, uh, a disgusted student in one of his lecture theatres says, delete your account. Um, I'm pretty sure someone says he's cancelled at one point. Um, and he's sort of he faces expulsion from Berkeley. It sort of becomes a thing. And he protests facing expulsion for for doing this on in his own time. And his father, who's this sort of rock star literature professor, really a wonderfully parodic 
um, account of like a contemporary, you know, too cool for school literature professor who, you know, can talk Yates, can talk uh, Friends, can do, you know, fluent in high, low culture, all that kind of stuff. He responds by saying, it's 2018, there is no private life. And it's just, to me, it feels like it's 2018, the movie, which means that if you haven't seen it, then it's also 2019, the movie. (laughs) It's smart, it's offensive, it's full of delicious details and little flashy visual moments. Um, It will make you feel deeply uncomfortable and I really can't rave about it enough. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's great. So is this like a, would you put this in the same field as Sorry to Bother You? In this sort of looking at a confused and uh, divided America? Uh, well, I haven't seen Sorry to Bother You, ah, so okay. I can't comment on that. Um, but it is very much about, I guess, where America is going or, or a particular facet of America, but not in a sort of laboured or, you know, annoyingly... It's, it's not in this sort of soppy uh, liberal earnestness at all, at all. Right. Um, and it will make you feel deeply uncomfortable if you watch it, but I, I think it's totally worthwhile. Cool. Thank you. Yep. You That's- can watch it on YouTube premium i think or something. right okay yeah cool that's bodied um let's see if i can form a sentence yeah shall well, we <laughs> let's. What's your number five, <laughs> my number five is actually a 2017 film i think but i saw it in early 2018 it's bpm cool which right. is the robin campillo film and i don't know whether this is going to come up in either of your lists a little bit later on but i adore this film and basically haven't stopped thinking about it since i saw it and that's quite striking. I mean, there's a lot of films that I just keep thinking about, but I have to put this on the list up there. So I, the reason I love it is, I mean, you know, BPM, if you haven't heard of it, it's set in the early 1990s in Paris. It's set around the ACT UP, um, you know, organisation protest time due to the um, prevalence of HIV and AIDS in the community. And I just I thought it was this incredible, I mean, you know, not only being this analysis of a social set, but also in its cinematic makeup was this brilliant blend of a passionate moments, but then contrasted with a really hollow kind of setting of meetings, the um, anger of protests, the um, pain and joy of love and dance were all combined in this really, really powerful way, um, accompanied by a score written by a composer named Arno Rebortini full of pathos, reverie, elation, all of these types of things. I think the day after I saw the film, I went for a 10K run listening to the score just the whole time. Like, it just kind of became this really powerful thing for me. Um, I love the way that it kind of constructs itself, not just as a story, but as kind of this collection of moments and this rhythm uh, of the characters and of what they're experiencing and of a film basically a film rhythm separate to the characters itself was really great I loved the performance by Arnold Valois as Nathan and I thought I just want to shout out the cinematography by Gian Lapovi and the editing by Campillo Anita Roth and Stephanie Leger I think made this film really kind of powerful just that combination of everything was so incredible I thought and it took a lot of risks you know, it wasn't playing it safe in any sense, not only in its content, but also in the way that it that it was composed. Um, just made it really important for me as a film. Mm, yeah, I don't think anyone would argue with that as a no. cracking choice. In fact, I may furiously agree with you as the our list making goes on. Really, we may come okay. to discover because yeah, this is strange because we did talk about it like from last year's MIF. I remember Anwen was extremely excited about BPM. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so this is the difficulty of being in Australia and making these things. I think is that you always end up straddling years. 
Yeah. It's true that, yeah, releases don't go for... I mean, I it did get a release, I think, but I saw it at maybe the French Film Festival, mm, mm-hmm. um, I think. I think that's when I saw it too. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then I think maybe a month later it got, a, you know, a short-lived release at, at a few small cinemas in Melbourne. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, didn't get really wide exposure, so... Mm, still, cracking choice. Um, yeah, because last year I put Sweet Country as my number two, which I think most people will have seen this year because I think we saw it in some release, like a Boxing Day sort of pre-media screening or something. So I would probably have that in my list if I didn't already put it in last year's. Yeah, it's true. There are a couple like that as well, mm. you know, that do go throughout years. Like I saw people putting um, Let the Sunshine In on their 2018 lists and I think that was – and Lady Bird was mm. both of those who were in my true. 2017 yeah. list. Yeah, so. yeah, well, Phantom Thread didn't get released till January and I absolutely loved that, but I still think of that as a last year film. Oh, I think of it as a this year film. Yeah. Anyway. Because uh, so this was like the year I set my own personal record of seeing the most movies um, in any year. Why is How that, Andy? Many. Um, Sorry. Is that – 111. Is that because you maybe went somewhere times. really exciting? That's partly the reason, and partly because I was act, at Actor, doing the Actor Award. Where, where else did you go? I went to Cannes. <laughs> 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 um, but also, like, this year was like most of the films are just mediocre to pretty okay. Mm. There was some, I didn't have any five star movies this year, which. And I don't think you had a equivalent of a Call Me By Your Name experience in 2018. Well, no, no, but then no. It's a once in a decade, possibly exactly. once in a lifetime yeah, experience yeah, yeah, to have exactly. that, so it's ludicrous exactly. to even compare. But um, quality that I wanted the most in my top five films was like a feeling of newness and freshness and excitement. Cool. Because there was so much content and I think lots of people got overwhelmed with content in 2018. Um, and so I was kind of looking past the sequels and adaptations of existing intellectual properties to try and find really interesting new stuff. And my number five is a film that I got at, in spades, but also I don't know if it fully succeeded in what it set out to do. And this film is the Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Interactive oh, film. Oh, intriguing choice. Have either of you seen this? I know. I it, have not. It right. happened while I was on sort of yeah. Christmas holiday. So this got dropped, I think, on Christmas Eve. Well, no, Boxing Day, I think, along with mm-hmm. Bird Box and around the time of Dumplin' and stuff. I've seen Bird Box. Yeah, right. And Feelings? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Black Mirror Bandersnatch is an interactive movie directed by David Slade and written by Charlie Brooker. And it was made in conjunction over a long period of time with Netflix as to be this interactive film. So the viewer can actually watch if they're watching on a smart device and then click their mouse on uh, options given at the bottom of the screen to, to choose what choices the lead character makes. And so the film is set in 1984 and it plays out across a day in the life of a computer programmer who has an appointment at a job at a game company where his hero, the game maker Colin Rittman works. And so this interactive nature just felt kind of revolutionary in so many ways because I think it's got around three to three and a half hours of total material but it's still kind of a 90 minute movie but you have all these different endings and so I spent about three hours kind of playing this movie in a way. Why is it different to a video game? Well, it's it's very cinematic. It kind of does tell a narrative story. But video games, aren't video games kind of sold and discussed on being cinematic these days? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I feel like possibly Red Dead Redemption 2 is the greater creation if we're going to start comparing them, but because that is extremely cinematic and has a huge voice cast and you have, you know, countless options in that. But this was kind of interesting because it was written like as in conjunction with tel- with Netflix and Netflix actually plays a key part in one of the decisions you make because of the nature of the story, which I think is what sets it apart from being a video game, is that it's about this guy who's making a choose-your-own-adventure game in 1984 who's also f- having a psychotic episode as well where he feels like people are making decisions for him. So there's this whole way that the interactive nature is written into the story, which I don't know if I need to see many films like this. I mean, it's kind of 
fun in a way. Uh, there were a couple of kids' movies that used the same technology on Netf- by Netflix earlier, like I think A My Little Pony or something like that sort of adventure where kids could choose what the ponies did, oh. <laughs> which sounds great. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But then the fact you've got Charlie Brooker writing this and Netflix are going, okay, we're going to you know, rewrite the way that we stream movies to allow you to have this sort of interactive nature felt very exciting and new. Um, I felt the story didn't quite reach the peaks I wanted it to, but it still felt so exciting in 2018 that I thought I had to go in there. Um, and it's still on Netflix now, and I highly recommend it. Keep having these vivid dreams, like thinking weird things. What sorts of things? We're going to be a hit factory, like Motel, but for computer games. You heard it here first. Bandersnatch. It's an adventure game based on the book. Jerome F. Davies was a genius. See that bloke who went cuckoo and cut his wife's head off? When it's a concert piece, a bit of madness is what you need. Interesting. Well, it's been Netflix's year, 2018, yes. I think. Yeah. Um, can't argue with that. You may hear from them again later. Ah, okay. Uh, so my number four film is Burning, uh, the Korean movie based on uh, Haruki Murakami's short story, uh, Barn Burning. I just love this movie. I love it. It starts, but crucially does not end, as a sort of naturalistic slice of life drama following Lee Jong-soo, a 20-something nice guy um, and wannabe writer who's sort of drifting through life in Seoul. And he runs into Hamey, who says that she's his childhood acquaintance, although he doesn't recognise her. And this is the first of many unresolved mysteries that sort of cumulatively begin to haunt this film. That all sort of comes later. Um, First of all, they go out to dinner. They go back to her tiny one-bedroom apartment. They have sex. And then suddenly she's off to Africa and he's promising to feed her cat while she's gone. And then weeks later, she returns along with her newfound friend, Ben, who is in many ways Lee Jong-soo's opposite. He's hunky, confident and wealthy. And from this point on, the film slowly shifts gears and starts paying increasingly close attention to the relationship between these two men. There's ambiguity shot through this film. Uh, Did Haimi and Jong-soo really grow up together? Uh, when Ben sort of says that his favourite hobby is setting fire to abandoned greenhouses, is he being serious? The film doesn't quite... They, they, they remain unresolved, these questions, and I sort of love that. I love how that ambiguity sort of turns this into a, a critical portrait of, you know, the prototypical nice guy, um, but done in such this sort of interesting, ambiguous kind of way. And it contains one of my favourite scenes of a film this year, which is this uh, sort of much commented on beautiful dance sequence that takes place near the North Korean border, where Miles Davis' music plays and Haimi dances, and then... Chang Dong removes the music, leaving us just with the awkward sounds of her environment uh, while she's dancing. So he instantly removes the glamour from this moment. um, And then she begins to cry, almost responding to what he's doing outside of the film text. So it's just beautifully made. And I really, yeah, I really recommend it. It's it's really sort of thought-provoking and affecting. And also quite, yeah, quite weirdly scathing in its investigation of a certain branch of masculinity. I'm so glad you mentioned this. This is just outside my top five. Mm. I absolutely love this. Because when I saw it at 
can. Um, I kind of liked it and I thought, oh, yeah, that was really good. A bit long maybe. And then the more, I just wouldn't leave my brain alone. Like mm. I kept going, God, that scene was beautiful. Hang on. What, did Was there even a cat? I don't think uh, there was. Was there a cat? And no, yet the I cat food It's was so wet. interesting, you guys, because I had the opposite experience. Like I think when I saw it, I was pretty stunned and amazed. And I had, until you mentioned it, Anders, forgotten about that dance scene, which is incredible. <gasps> really? And I can't remember exactly where it occurs in the film, but I think that maybe that moment was the last great moment of that film and then afterwards it lost me. And that's why it kind of, when I started thinking about it after seeing it, it, you know, went further and further and further from my top films of the year. Mm. Um, You know, sort of after certain things occur in the film, I I think it loses its strength. Yeah, it does kind of tail off a little. It kind of does... Pose these I mean, really interesting its, questions. Yeah, in the first that's its intention, right? Is yeah, to kind of, does, you yeah. know, see how far you'll go with it. But yeah, with me, it just, that moment was incredible. Mm. No, I love what I had to say about Korean society as well this idea of this Gatsby ish background that's never really fully explained. Yeah, exactly. Know, to ben, um, it's this sort of, you know, semi Americanized character. Yeah, that was interesting. Sort of rural urban divide mm. is in there in a very interesting way. Um, I couldn't get over the gentle. Uh, sort of megaphone, the propaganda yeah, from the North Korean yeah. border just wafting over the soundtrack, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So it's full of these little details. Mm. I, I really recommend it. Same. Claire White and top films of the year is hard because there's so many amazing films this year um quickly want to mention films that I know are going to be in everyone's list such as You Were Never Really Here from Lynn Ramsey and Creators Shoplifters which was phenomenal also want to quickly mention To All The Boys Love Before which is probably one of the best and point perfect teen films and rom-coms to have existed in recent years Uh, But mainly I want to focus on two films that have meant a lot to me this year or kind of stuck with me close to my heart. One is Columbus by Koganada, which I saw at Acme this year, introduced by the lovely Eloise, actually. Um, It features stunning, intricate and subtle performances by Hayley Lou Richardson and John Cho, and I can't stop thinking about how it explores um, these interesting emotions of feeling lost yet being in very different stages of their lives another film i quickly want to mention is skate kitchen by crystal moselle which is about a group of female skateboarders in new york city it's this fantastic portrait of female friendship and the way that it's filmed is phenomenal when these girls skate down the streets of New York City it looks like they're flying and it's just so cool and introspective of a cool subculture that you don't get to see much on screen and I urge you all to check it out for a while I was feeling really lonely that loneliness that you have even in a crowded room but I don't feel it anymore Do you like dick or pussy? I like boys. No, boys are just uneducated. Hey, can you do an alley? No, bro, I'm a poser. You use tampons? You don't. Can't they kill you? What? Hey, mom. Yeah, I'm at the library. Hey! 
My number four is Zama, Lucretia Martel's oh, cool. film. Yes. Uh, so some Argentine cinema. This is a period drama set in a remote colony in South America, um, a remote Spanish colony, I should say, following an administrative official named Zama trying to get relocated in an empire. For much of this film, it follows, I think, a fairly transparent plot, pretty straightforward. Um, but as Zama's mental condition deteriorates and he becomes more and more frustrated about not being able to leave his post, the film becomes a strange and magical fever dream, I think, along with Zama's mental state, which is really fascinating to kind of go with and experience along with him. I think that this film really counters encounters a man's increasing futility or feelings of futility with the intensification of cinema's textures, colours, sounds and that kind of thing. So you can really see it building to a particular point in contrast with the way that the narrative is going, which I find is a really Mm, interesting kind of experiment and challenge to the audience to go in one direction when maybe the narrative is trying to push you in another. (laughs) (laughs) So it makes, I don't know, I just felt extremely weird watching this film. I mean, I loved it to bits. Um, It's sometimes, it's like exquisitely funny at points and just so absurd and strange. Um, There's a moment with the llama, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Reminds me a lot of the um, moment in The Lady Eve when Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda are like making, kind of making love in a paddock and then there's a horse behind them and it's yes, like right. trying to just butt into them like talking to each other and they're talking about how much they're in love and everything and he's thing. trying to seduce her and a horse just keeps butting in <laughs> and they push it away and they keep talking to each other anyway it's very similar yeah. to that um, and there are several other films that include those kind of like really strange um, animal intrusions in intimate moments as well um, but it's kind of, I mean, it's incredibly rich and evocative in terms of being set in this place. And the richness, at a certain point, they move from the little colony and they go somewhere else. Um, and the richness just kind of gets richer. It gets greener. The text, like oral textures kind of get louder. It's just really incredible as yeah. a film and as an yeah, like experience, I think. Um, I've, I knew I was going to love this. I'm a big fan of Martel cinema anyway. Um, and, yeah, it didn't disappoint. No, it certainly didn't. And you're not the only person who singled out Zama as being one of their favourite <laughs> films of the year. My favourite film of the year was Lucrecia Martel's Zama, almost precisely because it exhibits all of those qualities that we're told are horrible and shouldn't be done within the cinema. It's what can be described as incessantly boring. It makes... I I was incredibly close to falling asleep throughout the film's runtime, even though it was... I was hotly anticipating the film, and Martel is one of my absolute favourite filmmakers, and the... It's repetitive. The sound design is almost unbearable and how precise and thick it is. The atmosphere is, is impenetrable and pregnant with hot air. Those qualities are, all create 
really a cinema that shows and doesn't tell that is certainly an incredible adaption of what Antonio Di Benedetto's source novel tries to communicate and what Martel tries to communicate through images. All of these reframing techniques that attempt and they succeed to, in a very discomforting way, reframe Argentina's colonialist past and more so than that, just create a new and disturbing and scary way of seeing the world. I, I loved Sama for all the reasons that we're told not to love cinema. That only makes me love it even more. And that was James Waters talking about the Zama. Um, so coming to mind before uh, is another film with the word black in it and that film was Black Panther which I thought was just the most jaw-dropping experience yes. I had in a cinema this year I was just could not believe that somebody who was not even 30 years old had been given 200 million dollars to make a superhero movie that was the 18th in a sequence of superhero movies that was so unusual and so fresh and so exciting and told as a fable of a fictitious African nation rather than some sort of comic book yarn that didn't really deal with anything new but this instead you know brings up colonialization um with so much energy and creativity with such uh, a great integration of special effects and gorgeous cinematography some of which uh, those special effects were made here in australia also the music was also reflecting that because there was a lot of baba mal there was a lot of west african traditional music also mixed with kendrick lamar and some really cutting edge r&b um, without a doubt, they're the best costumes and hair and makeup of any film in years, I think. Um, the fight scenes were really, really visceral. They also had this really nice non-CGI quality to them. The fact that this was a Marvel movie, I still kind of find phenomenal when yeah. I watched it. I watched it again yesterday and just was totally just caught up with the whole story. Um, not quite perfect. I think like some of the superhero beats kind of come in in a fairly predictable way. There's an in- inevitable CGI-heavy battle toward the end, which... It's kind of not even really the climax of the film, but it kind of feels like it has to be there. There's the post-credits bit, which ties it in with another film that's coming down the track. In this case, it was Thor. But also, there wasn't quite enough world-building for me. I could have spent so much more time in Wakanda. That was such a, almost like a Tolkien-esque detail that we got a few fleeting glimpses of before that was kind of pushed aside. And went it's not really a film direction. series that's into, like, no, individual world-building, exactly, though, is it? Exactly, it doesn't give itself the time. Yeah, you, which is unfortunate that it kind of comes from that series because yeah. as you say you could have had so much more of it totally oh my god yeah yeah um but also to given look, looking at most other superhero movies that came out this year there was so much put on their shoulders there's so many characters to juggle people to move from a to b so much exposition necessary mm. to move to the next thing in the in the franchise that was already being in po- early production or whatever that it just felt like a convey belt film this did not feel like that at all i thought yeah. no I, what i loved about black panther i agree the soundtrack is um incredible really and quite memorable in a way that they often aren't in yes, uh, yeah, big yeah. budget Hollywood films nowadays. Um, and also just a strong sense of itself, very confident filmmaking. Mm, it's yeah. none of this sort of wishy-washy Avengers, Age of Ultron, we've got to juggle five million things and sort of end up doing nothing. Like, oh, I, I watched well, that and I was like, what is the point of this beyond just, <laughs> beyond, beyond yeah. just being a placeholder? Whereas yeah. this, yeah, just the confidence with which it, made, it was made. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful film. Very keen to see what the people involved do next. Cool. Uh, my number three is Eloise's number five. It's BPM. Really? Oh. Yes. And again, I was talking about how weird, this is a weird one where <laughs> some people saw it last year uh, in 2017. I saw it in 2018. Um, it's just, a, speaking of energy and a feeling of confidence, it's a film that just feels so present. Um, so on the one hand, uh uh, as I think Eloise, you said, um, it's a drama, you know, following the Paris branch of um, the activist group ACT UP. 
Um, and a lot of it's taken up with their sort of raucous meetings um, where they're continuously planning this series of direct action interventions sort of in the face of governmental and corporate neglect um, of the AIDS crisis. So all of that's there. Um, and Robin Campillo was um, a member of that organisation, I'm fairly sure. So um, it's got that sort of... You can tell there's a personal... The level of detail is quite extraordinary. And I think it, the, the detail is such that it sort of feels urgent in a way, like it's almost galvanising, um, galvanisingly present. You've got all of that and then... It doesn't seem like a period drama or whatever, no. does it? It doesn't yeah, seem like, yeah. oh, this urgency was, was you know, so called in the 90s and it's no longer now. It seems very present, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And then, so you have that and then you intersperse that with these uh, sort of exultant dance sequences and also uh, these sort of steamy gay sex scenes. Um, and there's no shortage of either of these sequences as well. So it sort of balances these three kind of realms, I guess, um, in such an interesting way. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. It's, it's in terms of, you know, gay people taking ownership of their bodies and doing so in such a sort of wonderfully intense and, again, urgent kind of way it's really deeply cinematic how it's not just a turgid standard biopic about important issues like it really uses film as a medium in order to sort of grab you by the throat and sort of bring those issues to you in a very visceral immediate kind of way and in you know a really deeply felt way as well so i think it's quite extraordinary how it manages to do all of that yeah, I also think it's. I really love the way that it um, just so courageously just tackled the politics of sex, which is something that's always been kind of a bit too, uh, a bit too hands off or a bit too boring. Yeah. But yeah. instead, of, there's some of the fieriest parts of the film is where people are like link, making that personal political sexual connection and just doing it so well. Yes. So well, as and what, at such a social level, yeah. as one of the characters says, I think it's a great bit of dialogue. He lives. Um, politics in the first person yes. something like that yeah, yeah. so yeah. and I think that's the raison d'etre of the film mm. in a way yeah so yeah if you haven't seen it do recommend I think it's out on DVD and streaming and all the rest of it so easy mm. to find and turn it up and don't yes, you turn it up. own it on Blu-ray I Anders? do have it so Anders so will lend it to I'll, you I'll happily <laughs> lend it to you I, I, I was just thinking I need to watch it tonight again so once <laughs> that's done take it <laughs> Uh, all right, so my number three, I'm choosing on the fly. I have a list of uh, four films here that I said to myself I would just choose from, on, you know, in the spur of the moment. And the others I'll mention later, but I feel like I know what my one and two are, you know, if we're listing things. So my number we three, are. I'm going to say, <laughs> is um, Private Life, Tamara Jenkins' Netflix film. Having a baby is an immoral act. Overpopulation, climate change, rise of neo-fascism. Did you take your Valium? Yes. Why? They're trying a by any means necessary approach. I thought they were done with all that and they were trying to adopt. They're still doing that. They're like fertility junkies. I love this film a lot, particularly the moment where Catherine Hahn is yelling about prude social workers and she they're like Paul Giamatti is, is kind of her semi-conservative I mean not conservative really but in this particular scenario he's set up as a conservative one conservative husband saying do you think we should take down this 
portrait of like close-up painting of someone's vagina so that it's not staring the social worker directly in the face when she's deciding whether we're worthy for an adoption and Catherine Hahn says no you know what I don't care if she thinks that we're like gonna take away an adopted child before because we've got a piece of art on our wall and that she comes out of cleaning the bathroom holding a <laughs> like bottle of toilet cleaner wearing a t-shirt and no underpants <laughs> and it's just the her Muffy's out and she's screaming this stuff. It's just the greatest scene maybe of the year. <laughs> greatest comedy scene of the year, let's say. Um, I just thought it was so perfect. And Catherine Hahn could, uh, uh, of any person in the world right now, could pull that off. Um, I think maybe her and Sandra Oh would be two people who would be perfect to, to do that. Um, but I <laughs> thought this film was really special and it's, I mean, it's a... I mean, what is it? Like a social comedy drama, maybe yeah, you could say? It's like also it's also one of those sorts of weird, cynical, Upper West Side New York drama, comedy dramas that don't really get made anymore. Yeah, and it's but it's not, you know, it reminded me quite a bit of uh, Joan McLean Silver and her work. Um, mm. I mean, of course, I feel like I'm maybe being a bit obvious here because there's, you know, because Paul Giamatti works in a pickle shop. Um, and yeah. the young the young woman, you know, falls in love with the pickle guy, which is a bit of a Joan McLean Silver thing. But that idea of like focusing on a particular kind of way of life while living in a community that either aspires to that particular way of life or kind of challenges it is really, really interesting and is what is something that I feel like, yeah, as you said, Andy, you don't really see the opportunity mm. given anymore. Yeah, or if you do, it's usually a, a Noah Baumbach or some of these sorts of familiar voices doing different aspects of that sort of stuff. Whereas Tamara Jenkins, I just love, she just gets into the language so much. She fills her character's mouths with these fantastic lines. I mean, none of it just, feels like Noah Baumbach, yeah, like uh, has has done some extremely good stuff, but in some senses I feel like his work has kind of taken on a bit of a performative scope mm. whereas you don't get that at all from this it just seems like the um their the character's existence comes from these very real needs that that are being explored yeah, yeah. and that's what i really love about it um that you can just you know it, it's essentially exploring the lives of these two people in their early to mid 40s who are childless and desperately want to be parents Mm. Um, and that's what you know so at certain moments there's some extremely harsh kind of things that if you're you know an audience member you might need to confront watching it but I don't think it's going to be too hard for anyone to watch it because the way that it deals with it is kind of so understanding yeah Yeah. and there's no I don't know there's no cruelty in this film no it's true even though some people are quite cruel to each other I do feel like tomorrow really empathizes with everybody in all their difficult positions um, yeah, I I, you know, if, I think it's not something that would maybe traditionally be on my top five, but the way that this film is done is so, I don't know, it's so respectful of everyone and every issue that's mm. kind of approached that I just had to think of it. That, that I think of it so highly because of what, what Tamara Jenkins is trying to do in this film. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat. Fat and ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. My number three is uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favourite. 
Have you? Yes. This only came out on Boxing Day, I think. So. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I have seen it and I loved it. Right, yes. So this um, kind of leapt straight into my top five as soon as yep. the credits started rolling. Um, the, the talking about good screenplays, Deborah Davis came across this in 19, wrote this in 1998 and has been waiting <laughs> to be in the right hands um, ever since then because it it's such a cracking story. Co-written by an Australian Tony, Tony guy. Tony McNamara. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Who wrote bloody um, Doctor Doctor, the Channel Nine TV series? Really? Well, that's <laughs> yeah. quite a journey. We should try and get him on the podcast. I'd love to know how he went from that. To <laughs> I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't. I think that what's his name, Tony McNamara. Um, yeah, it, the script is so fiery. It's um, so kind of full yes, of ridiculousness. Um, the wigs are ridiculous. The makeup, the, the ostentatiousness of the palace, the whole premise of um, Queen Anne who tragically, I mean, had 17 miscarriages and had owned a rabbit for each miscarriage. So it's this really wounded, really sick woman. Uh, Rachel Rice plays Lady Sarah and then her, um, Emma Stone plays her cousin and they're both kind of vying for the affections of Queen Anne because, of course, this is a difficult situation for everybody because there can really only be one favourite and I, you know, the Queen kind of finds the ent- entertainment in them, them playing off against each other. You mean the Queen has one favourite? Yeah, right. and so at the beginning, yeah. Rachel Weiss is kind of in charge and whispering in her ear in a way that reminded me quite a bit of Lord of the Rings Two Towers section with King Theoden and um, Wormtongue. I'm just thinking about Marlene Dietrich now. Good, yeah, because that's a really good thing to think about because um, it is a bit dangerous. Liaison's a bit Barry Lyndon. It's a bit all about Eve. Um, The acting is kind of uniformly amazing. The score is really strange and repetitive and unnerving. The soundtrack includes lots of uh, Bach, Handel, Schubert, uh, Schumann and Messiaen. A lot of it might, I think it might just be modern composers like uh, Anna and Meredith is also credited. Uh, Elton John has a song over the closing credits, so it's kind of bizarre. It's a really kind of writer's bizarre film that I haven't really seen anything like this before. It reminded me a bit of Peter Greenaway's Draftsman's Contract in the way that people were often kind of confined to these ho- these really expansive houses that were made to feel like this, almost like prisons, which is kind of emphasised in the way that there's only natural light is used. So often there'll be sunlight outside, but people will be inside by candlelight talking to each other. And so it's this constant twilight which kind of is also quite unnerving as well. Um, it's quite unpredictable as well, which I really enjoyed. It had this real sort of ferocity to it, as well as using a lot of uh, fisheye lenses, candid cameras, like this camera kind of floats through these hallways. But then he's always kind of drawing attention to his skills as well in a way that I thought kind of matched the pitch of what was happening on the, the screen. The camera work was quite amazing. It was really, really? unusual, yeah. Yeah, very strange. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people would find a lot to like about this. I Yeah, thoroughly rope it. And... Um, very queer, like very unashamedly gay. Yeah, and gay based in, yeah. It also does feel like a film that could have been made quite poorly in the 90s, but now it's, <laughs> it's actually done. They're not afraid to really throw all the language in there and, and not even allude to stuff, but actually depict it. Yeah. Great. Yeah, really good stuff. Uh, so my number two is, uh, well, sorry to Mamma Mia 2, but <gasps> Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse Whoa, was the best two. Hollywood movie I saw last year. My name is Miles Morales. Brooklyn! I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear of the Super Collider? You're going to love this. Dimension opening now. You're like me. That's impossible. I really love this film. It's the best superhero film I've seen in years. And also, I'd say the best animation, although I haven't seen your name. I, I do <laughs> admit, Andy. Um, so it's set in this multiverse. Um, and the main character, really, is Miles Morales, who's a teenager, being sent by his parents to an elite boarding school where he's struggling to fit in. 
Long story short, he accidentally stumbles upon a particle accelerator thingamabob that connects several universes together. And through luck and happenstance, a bunch of different Spider-Men end up working together to stop the evil Kingpin's deranged plan to sort of collapse all of these multiverses together. So in order for him to bring back... The, his wife and child who abandoned him. It's a very, really interesting and emotional it backstory. Is, yeah, it's a great story. For yeah. this um, bad guy. I just love the animation style. It's so well done. Um, there's a frenetic energy to everything, um, including the humour. It's actually funny. It's very funny um, and emotional. Um, I literally, I think I teed up at that backstory, which is we. I find myself... Embracing Hollywood emotional manipulation so readily uh, these days. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, it, it sort of makes you laugh, makes you cry. Um, and there's this great central dynamic between all of these different Spider-Man types. So there's Miles Morales. Um, then there's a Spider-Man who we would all be familiar with, Peter Parker. Um, and he's sort of this middle-aged divorce slob in this film. There's also Spider-Man Noir, voiced by Nicolas Cage. Um, hilariously, yeah. yes. <laughs> he's a hard-boiled detective Spider-Man. Um, there's Spider-Ham, who's a cartoon pig Spider-Man. And then there's Penny Parker, who's an anime-style Japanese schoolgirl who pilots a mech suit. Um, so together, this group of motley versions of Spider-Man team up uh, to go after the Kingpin. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's um, it's just so entertaining and so well made. And I just had this rush coming out of it. You know, it's a proper hoot. Mm, it is. Um, it's so enjoyable. And it's also yeah. G-rated. I took my oh, really? eight-year-old nephew to it. Mm. And there was nothing offensive or scary or, or too scary. And it's just so witty. It's so masterfully put together. Like the way that you'll, you'll do hand-drawn animation over computer animation. Just felt revolutionary. It felt, looked looked so cool, and the way that there was a different style for every character. Yeah, that was cool. The sound design again was amazing. And these are the people that got kicked off the last Star Wars movie for being too edgy. Well, Lord I and th- Miller. I think, and I think I've now come to realise that Lord and Miller are the best Hollywood filmmakers. Yeah, because they they're also behind Twenty One and Twenty Two Jump Street, exactly, which yes. are my <laughs> right favourite American <laughs> comedies of the recent. I think they make really good movies. Yeah, um, and this is one of them. So I. If, if you're a superhero sceptic, I would um, ignore that and go into it anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you love superheroes, there's so much here to enjoy. Mm, you would well. be so rich. You've probably already seen it, in fact, yeah, if well, you, you love probably, superheroes yeah, exactly. that much. Really recommend it. It was the best Hollywood film I saw in a year that actually had a couple. I quite like this one. Um, I quite like Mission Impossible Fallout as well. Same. And Mamma Mia. So there were a few. Mm, I cried in Mamma Mia. Did you? Well, yeah, <laughs> yes. lots of people do. Apparently. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout was great too. For anyway. sure. Anyway, yes, good good movie. Go watch Spider-Man and Spider-Verse. It's still in cinemas. Mm. Great. Maybe I will. Yeah, recommend it. My number two is Cold War. Cool. Um, I'm so it. The Polish film by Pavel Pawlikowski. Um, I'm sorry, Andy. Unlike Roma, this film really <laughs> deserves its black and white cinematography. I actually am a bit sad that Roma was not made in colour. I think it could have been something quite stunning. But this film, Pawlikowski has said in an interview that he made it in black and white for several reasons, but one including that when he kind of tried to imagine Poland in the 1950s, he couldn't imagine a colour, any colour palette for it. 
like anything at all um, because things were so like it was such a state of upheaval things were so um, kind of drained of life and I guess of hope and of unity um, that that he couldn't picture it being in color and the way that it's kind of filmed I don't know the the contrast in the the lights and darks is so strong in Cold War that it's really excellent but this film is number two on my list for I think not just because of the way the cinematography looks but because it's doing what I mean a lot of my favorite films I think of the last maybe five years do but this year quite a few of my top five do which is tell a story but rather than um, preference the story in the runtime they preference the feelings behind the story and the feelings offered by characters and the telling the story in fragments allows other things to kind of come to the fore yeah 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 so a film maybe kind of like um i mean bpm doesn't really do it because it is quite in depth but some other films that i'll talk about will do it zama to an extent kind of does that uh, towards the end so i think that it's like it sets up a narrative quite well early on, which is that there's going to be this love story between Zula, played by Joanna Coolig, an incredible performance, and Victor, played by Thomas Cott. So it sets this up quite quickly, that they're two people who are not meant to be together, but they fall in love anyway. And then it unravels the narrative in fragments, um, supported, I think, by... The echoes in its exposition, for instance, there's a, a moment kind of early on where um, Zula and uh, Victor first meet. So she goes to interview or she joins his music school and he asks her about her background because she's kind of infamous or she's gossiped about. And she says, my father mistook me for my mother and a knife showed him the difference. So, you know, it kind of tells its story without belaboring any of its points. And I find that really fascinating, particularly in this case, because then it, it's not only the backstory that's offered that way, but it's also the entire story. So it's 85 minutes long. It spans almost 20 years, I think. And you just see these people kind of reuniting at certain points in different parts of Europe. You know, of course, it's the time of the Iron Curtain. There's a lot going on. They're not allowed to be together. They're not allowed to be expressing their um, musical, cultural, kind of um, personal freedoms in this sense. Um, they're, they're meant to be, you know, towing the, the line, so to speak. Um, but they're not, and that's what's really kind of fascinating about this is just the incredible power that comes from only a few tiny scenes and insights into their lives. Um, of course, I think we need to mention that incredible bar top dance scene to rock around the clock, yes, which I think yeah. is in Paris, yeah, like is, yeah. um, Zula follows yeah. or, or follows or finds Victor in Paris. I think the implication is that she's heard he's there and follows him or suspects he's there. And anyway, there's this great kind of crazy scene where after a fairly sober um, sequence, rock around the clock plays and you get this sense of you know um, American music uh, intruding into Europe or kind of bleeding in and getting in through the the Iron Curtain kind of like forcing its way into these people's lives I was talking to a friend about it thinking about like um, cinematography of a bar top dance scene compared comparing this to the um, the VM Rose scene in A Star Is Born yeah which I love but yeah. it's kind of really strange and 
when you watch that scene in A Star Is Born, it's you kind of feel very separated from Lady Gaga and you're not quite sure what she's doing, whereas in Cold War you feel like extreme reverie, mm. I think, and very free with with the way the Zulu's dancing around. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I adore this film so much. Um, and I think, I mean, it's not only like this brilliantly rich cinematic kind of portrait, but also so pertinent in terms of its exploration of history. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad you chose this film as well because, God, I loved it. I was expecting it to be a much bigger hit when I first saw it. I thought this is going to stay at Nova for weeks. People are going to be obsessed about this in a bigger way than so they were. It hasn't even been out for two weeks no, yet, has it? No, but people aren't talking about it the way like, I, you know, Ida, his previous film, oh, yeah, just kind right, of got nominated right. for two Oscars. It was like this huge big thing and I was like, I love that film. so do I, but Cold War is like a step above, I think. It's it so hasn't beautiful. been... Um, well, the final list of best foreign language no, pictures hasn't yeah. been announced yet, but it was on mm. the sh- you know the short list. So. Yeah, well, hopefully that will because that. But that, then Roma might beat it. I think there's probably a good chance of that. Yeah, mm. but um, Joanna Cooley, what a star! Incredible. Yeah, it's just I could yeah I could I was trying to work out what this was about the black and white that was so striking because it. He kind of goes for that one-one ratio thing again that he did in either. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a richer, it's a richer black and white. So the blacks are really, really black. Mm. Um, there's an incredible darkness to the film, and it looks like an old picture of an old time, rather than some kind of like washed imagination yeah, kind of yeah. recollection. For me, that's what that's what did it. Mm. It looks like something, you know. It looks like a piece of Yugoslavian <laughs> cinema from the nineteen sixties, <laughs> but in like five K or something. Yeah. Like eight K. I don't know, but it was so luminous and so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's such a good choice. I loved it. Um, speaking of washed out black and white films that look a bit like they could be taken from memory, <laughs> and hey, Netflix segway <laughs> segue into Roma, um, which is my number two, and. I um, know we talked about this last episode, but there were so many things that I didn't get around to saying because I was too interested in why you guys disliked it so much or were just <laughs> unimpressed with it or felt... I mean, there's so many people out there blowing its horn already that it doesn't really need that much more encouragement for people to go and see it. Cause, uh, but I do feel like some people might have tried to start with it and found the washing the floor scene at the beginning too slow or switched off after 20 minutes. It was the best bit. <laughs> it was one of the best bits. I Certainly, <laughs> I loved it as an opening. I thought it was one of my favourite openings of the year because... You start off with this. Uh, what do you start off with this? Okay, sorry, I'll explain. Okay. So you start off with a hard sub with a hard surface with credits projected onto it, yes. and then you get the sound of the water. Then you get the actual water. So then you got another layer, and then you get the reflection of of there, which is another layer of the window. Then you get a fl- plane flying across that, which is another layer. Point. While these things are happening, mm. and you're like, so this is like kind of incredible because it's like it becomes a portal into the way that you're looking back through time. So it goes from being this hard surface to this way in, but also it's done through this. Like in a way that it's not even really his story. It's not Alfonso Cuarón's story of the woman who looked after him as a child. And while it's like a family telling the story, and but most importantly, it's uh, the woman herself at the centre of it, his uh, housemate, I suppose. And it's kind of like this love letter. It's this really interesting decision to, of a film to make after you've made Gravity. I found this really interesting use of twenty million bucks and a, basically a blank check f- to say whatever you want to do next. Let's go for it. And he decides I'm going to do this extremely massively self-indulgent on one level, but also like this just the fastidious attention to detail I thought the technologically I thought it was amazing I thought the use of the camera was brilliant the sound design was um, one of the, probably the best like you almost never get 360 degree sound design and this is I thought was really done really really beautifully and it was never done in a showy way it was always done to enhance the emotional uh, story so 
the way that you might go from these sort of slow scenes of housework and then the camera will follow and outside there'll be a brass band playing and then before you even realise you haven't really blinked for five minutes because the camera hasn't cut to anything else. The scale of it just astonishes me every time as well. It manages to do this intimate, widescreen sort of epic thing really, really brilliantly. I thought it balanced them really nicely. It just seemed like... it was very unusual. I know. I mean, there's a few other things that are like this, but not to this sort of level of degree of technical expertise yet. The fact that there was uh, mixed techa language in there was really good. There's some use of great use of non-professional actors that really kind of carry the film for me. I mean, I know you guys like. I think the last scene was one of your favourites. We shouldn't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there's a long scene involving water. It was definitely the most engaging yeah. for me. Um, Down by the beach. Yeah. Yes. Same. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was. I know. I could see why people were getting so emotionally moved by that. It's just too good, too good not to mention. It's just. It's a remarkable film. Um, I want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> and please, listeners, support me on social media for this. I, I, I don't think it's better than any of the films in my top five. I just, I just don't understand it. Um, I honestly think Galaxy, uh, Galaxy. What is it? Gravity. Gravity is a better film. It's yeah. a great film as well, but. No, there's so much going on here. There's so much. I think that gravity you does. Gravity uses a classical, classical narrative structure, but for me, uses all of those things that you mentioned: attention to detail, like mm. incredible sound design, um, camera work, um, building on the characters' relationships, just as well as you say that they do in Roma, but with the classical narrative, which is why I and maybe you guys find it more engaging because it does that. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I love gra- Gravity as well, but this really kind of had an emotional... I mean, there was a potential... It's very difficult to get a silent fiction movie with a heart, I think. It's kind of... Often they really struggle with that, but I think mm. in Roma it's just overflowing with this kind of affection, nostalgia, but then using this kind of really cutting-edge you know, technology to shoot mm. all that sort of stuff and to get really intimate and to really foreground the emotional journey of the woman at its heart. Some of the perception stuff he did was quite extraordinary like de- that depth like i'm in that department store yes. scene yeah 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 you can see everything mm. um all that kind of stuff i found there was Ooh. a particular cut in the hospital um where I, I won't say what exactly the reason that is but they're in the hospital and there's a moment where um there's sort of a comment about whether someone has insurance or not from a staff member who works at the hospital. And before the person has a chance to answer, I think the camera cuts away to the actual operating room. Mm, mm-hmm. And I found that, I mean, that kind of thing is is what Coron is trying to do with this film, I think, is kind of highlight these um, social inequities yeah. within Mexico at the time. And that particular moment was very powerful for me, just the way that it was kind of done and where... Um, you think that something's being given a, a space to be explored and then it's ripped away. Mm, yeah. Because the cinema like experience is kind of trying to mirror the actual experience of, of life in that place. I found that kind of yeah, experiment. Particularly because that's happening in the middle of a very harrowing scene. Mm. Of a woman, yeah, yeah, in a in a traffic jam and then in a hospital, yeah, yeah, and I mean it's during um, the Corpus Christi massacre, yes. right? So the yeah. ho- hospital is going like bonkers because everyone's there trying to get um, seen. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It was. It seems like a super ambitious thing to do if you're going to be like, I'm going to tell the story of my housekeeper, but then it's going to incorporate this like epochal social change that's happening mm. around the same time. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was a sort of. Uh, 
ambition to this film that didn't see a lot of elsewhere in cinema this year. Mm. It's on Netflix. No more writing, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are going to get worse. Sometimes dreams aren't meant to be. Where are you going with that? I'm going to the rodeo. You don't need to go ride today. I'm entered and I'm riding. Go kill yourself then. Hey, what's up? I'm Eliza Jansen. I'm a writer and critic from Melbourne. My favourite movie this year was The Rider by Chloe Zhao. It's sort of a semi-documentary western about this really sensitive, kind of Heath Ledger-esque young guy um, who's forced to stop doing kind of the one thing in his life that gives him purpose, which is bronco riding after he sustains a really horrible brain-damaging injury at a rodeo. There just weren't many other films this year that made me feel like the director loved her subject so much and the fact that all of the actors in the ride are more or less kind of playing themselves just added to this. Um, you can tell Chloe Zhao, the director, she's really obsessed with the way that the characters talk, like all their weird regional slang and all of their idiosyncrasies and the ways in which they're talented. She just gets it across in such an addictive way that it's contagious, her love for the characters. And there were heaps of scenes where I just felt lucky to be allowed to see this kind of lifestyle. Watching the main character Brady breaking in a jumpy horse, more or less in real time training this horse, just felt so exclusive. Like I, I know I'm not going to see that anywhere else outside of travelling to this place and like hanging out with rodeo cowboys. Um, it was definitely the most singular and honest movie I saw this year and it's the one I've probably thought the most about when I've seen other more stylized or structured movies which would normally be more my bag um, but not in this case um, the writer took it for me this year Ivana Brihas. My favourite film of the year was Phantom Thread, which affected me so profoundly that I don't think I'm going to be able to do it justice in this short audio clip. So instead I'm going to talk about some other films that I really liked that were up there in my like top five or whatever of the year. Um, I really liked Burning and Let the Corpses Tan, which were both very physical experiences for me, but in, in different ways. Let the Corpses Tan was like this amazing kind of assault on the senses that I just immersed myself in and absolutely loved it and burning I was really I was really entranced by it and thought it was just a fantastic film and I'm really eager to see it again and get all my friends to see it um so those those are some big ones for me this year To build a little bit of faux tension, I'm going to put uh, the film diary right now, the Cultural Capital Film Diary. Cinema Nova is marking Holocaust Remembrance Day by screening a 25th anniversary release of Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List. That runs from January 24 to 30, and you can find out more at cinemanova.com.au. The Peninsula Film Festival is a free short film festival taking place in Rosebud on the Mornington Peninsula from February 1st to 3rd. 
Opening night sees a screening of Shane Jacobson's film Brothers Nest, and you can find out more at peninsulafilmfestival.com.au. Perhaps unsurprisingly, A Holiday in Melbourne features a season of films by Hayao Miyazaki. This time it's at the Astor Theatre and you can catch animated classics like Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, Spirited Away, Ponyo and Princess Mononoke on Mondays until February 3rd. Also at the Astor is a season of films by Alfred Hitchcock, Vertigo, Rear Window, Psycho, The Birds and others screen on Sunday evenings. Other screenings at the Astor include a sing-along screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on February 2nd, a double bill of Alien and Aliens special edition on January 25, and Creed and Creed 2 at January 11. I want to go to Alien and Aliens. Yeah, same. It's been ages. Mm-hmm. You can find out more at astortheatre.net.au. Over at Acme, there's a season of two 2017 films about skateboarding culture, Skate Kitchen, about an all-girl skating collective in New York, and Minding the Gap, about masculinity and skateboarding. They run January 17 until February 5. Also screening at Acme is a season of films starring Juliette Binoche. Pause yes. for Anders to express joy. So, Andy, what films can we catch on the big screen at Acme as part of Juliette Binoche? Well, film? you can see such beloved films as Let the Sunshine In. Yes. 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 Maybe my, in my top five of 2017. Yes. And Cloud of Sils Maria. I, I love Cloud that film Sils- so yeah. much. And uh, the opportunity to see it on the big screen. Great. Yes. Say, go. Um, as well as The Wait. Three- I love oh, The Wait yes. too. Isn't that a cold cap favourite? It should be, is it? Let's say it is. The, maybe the best opening credit scene of the last five years. The opening credits are so good. I have not lived it out. Return to it every now and then. Great dance scene also. Great letter card. Up there. It's, it's got the opening credit scene. It's got the dance scene. It's got everything. That, it's got Julia Binoche. It's like, it's, yeah, it's a cultural capital classic. Three Colours Blue and Certified Copy. Ooh, a certified copy is my favourite Absolutely, yeah. One of my favourite films. Oh, my, and my Three Colours Blue is playing on 35mm. Oh, oh good to know. Um, uh, I will see you at every one of these films. Okay, that um, just a reminder for listeners, that's from January 24 till February 12 when you can find out more <laughs> at acme.net.au. Ello, is there anything happening at Melbourne Cinematheque? There is nothing happening at Melbourne Cinematheque. We are still in the 2019 print or program printing finalising stage and... And you End of January, it will right, come okay. out, and no beans can be you spilled. Can't reveal that. anything. Oh, we have actually announced Ooh, our um, actually opening night film. We announced it at our final screening of 2018, and now it's on the Acme website. So our opening night film is Once Upon a Time in America, the <gasps> proper. <laughs> and this is excited. <laughs> The um the full or you know so called full cut two hundred and fifty one minutes. Wow. Sergio Leone film. You know gonna be on Acme screens for over four hours if you want to come to Cinematech. Yeah. I will be there. Pack a lunch. I've actually never seen the even modified version. Really? So oh, I'm pretty oh, psyched that modified for this. version is fantastic. I can't imagine what a four hour version is like. Four hours of, I don't know, good stuff. Mm. Right? Yeah. Anyway. Cool. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for our program launch will occur at some point during the January month. Great. So now we're down to our favourite films of the year. Can we find a critical consensus and actually name a cultural oh capital film God. of the year? I last don't know if that's possible. Last year, year there was a tie kind of between Lady Bird and Call Me By Your Name. Because yes. you and I both had Lady Bird at number one, but Anders' sheer love for Call Me By Your Name kind of equaled out. Didn't I put Call Me By Your Name in the year before? No, because the year before Maybe. was the Embrace of the Serpent. Yeah, I think that's true. I think Call Me By Your Name was the start of that year. Um, yes, I did. It did stun me. I did love it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, mm. Call Me By Your Name, but Lady Bird was so good, also. So good, but so 2018, Anders. What is your number one favourite film of 2018? Well, in a classic reflection of how messy all of this is, <laughs> my number one film is Let the Sunshine oh, In. No. <laughs> oh, no! 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Holy moly. I know. Uh, if you <laughs> haven't seen this on my recommendation, then you must see this on Anders' recommendation. Yeah. Come on, so guys. So please revisit our review of this in which I said it was the most boring film I've seen all year. <laughs> oh, my and God, I forgot about it's that. It's my 110th favourite film of oh the my year God. out of 111 me, me films. Fighting with, me fighting with Andy is my favourite thing about this podcast. Andy, <laughs> what did you say? What's the 111? What's worse than um, the Sunshine? There was one of these actor films that I've named <laughs> in my article about how heavily misogynistic the Australian cinema is. I do remember now you saying that it was so boring. Oh, good <laughs> that you, like, Anyway, to die please convince me otherwise, Anders. <laughs> Tell me why this is better than all the films you've, oh brilliant films you've mentioned so far. Um, okay, so I just think it's such a sophisticated. I was not even. I, I put. I've written here knitting together of notions on love. I don't think it actually knits them together. It's a sophisticated series of gestures on romance and love, um, and particularly from a middle-aged woman's point of view. I think Benoche's performance, Denise's script and her camera work are all of a piece and you watch the film, it's almost as if each element does not exist independently of the others. So uh, Benoche is sort of expressing these thoughts about romance. There's a lot of dialogue in this film, like a lot. A lot of conversations she has with her lovers, uh, with other women um, about her lovers and she expresses these thoughts, but then the film sort of uses her acting um, uh, and the, a really interesting, quite fluid camera work to express them as well. And I think maybe that's the key to the reason the film works. So on a superficial level, these are realistic characters doing realistic things, um, but you don't lose yourself over to some simulacrum of reality. It's not like a sort of standard conventional French drama where, you know, Juliette Binoche is playing some, you know, middle-aged woman who's getting into all sorts of romantic entanglements and that's it. Instead, the dialogue will take you out of the film or, or her complex performance which I I don't know watching it you never it's almost Brechtian I think in how she she embodies this woman who's sort of haphazardly looking for love but she's also sort of independently commenting on the fact that she's doing that so you're both you're in there but you're also alienated from what's going on in at a more intellectual to intellectualize what's happening I guess and I just think it's extraordinary that the film manages to pull that off and with such a sort of lightness of touch and there's this um i mean there's so many key moments but i think my favorite moment in the film comes when she's um headed to the bathroom and she essentially in one long take if i recall correctly denise camera follows her to the bathroom uh julie binoche's character and she sort of she she has a sort of emotional sort of breakdown i guess and then a sort of like she comes back from this emotional brink almost as if she goes from like despair to reverie in one uh, slow shot of the camera and one pan around Julia Binoche. And it's just amazing that she can embody this this transformation in such a short period of time and that Denise's camera tracks it all without a break. So it's as if all of, and I think that's what the film, it's all of these changing um, ideas, force, perspectives on love, all simultaneously, or all happening with the film embodies all of these things. Um, it's it's far more interesting than just sort of one 
simple reading of that. And I look, I really respect any film that saves Gerard Depardieu for the final scene only to immediately run the end credits over his face. <laughs> so it's just, I, I think it's an extraordinary film. I, I'm so happy that we get to rewatch it at Acme. Andy, you're going to come along. It's going to be great. <laughs> great dance scene too. Edit James at last. Yes. yes yeah, indeed, that was actually. the point where I really thought the film was about to like... <laughs> No, it was no, about to grab me and then just let me go. Push me away again. Pushes you out, and I think very deliberately. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a sort of it's an intellectual exercise as much as it, but also an emotional exercise. You know, I think that's the genius of the film is it's both of those things. Same. Yeah, it's great, but I I do understand why Mm. it's not everyone's cup of. Uh, no, that Bialetti espresso coffee or whatever. <laughs> I get that. No, that um, that Presenium Arch Brechtian de- alienation device just alienated me. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so glad you found that much to find to enjoy about yes, it. Yes, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Mm. Well, you and I saw it, Anders. Yes, I'd seen it already, so I was yeah, into cool. it. But lots of people walked out of our session, right? Yeah, because it, it was yeah. packed. We went, didn't we go to Brighton or yeah, something? Yeah, we were sort of Brighton Palace. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, where the fuck can we go? And it was only on at Brighton or something. So, yeah, we did. And it was full Sunday afternoon and I think lots of people walked out. Yeah, half my center. I saw it at the West Garth and half right. of them, half of my center. Well, everyone's going to do that again when Claire Denise knew oh God, uh, High Life, high life with Juliette Binoche plays the Palace Film, French Film Festival. Is it? Oh, my God. Yes, it really? is. I'm going to ask you some questions. How many are there? One guy at the front door, second guy on the top floor. After the tone, please leave a message. It's done. My number one is Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Oh, I'm so glad we're talking about that. So this is another, I mean, it's oh, yes. another right. film like Cold War where the story is told in fragments. Um, I think affecting great power rather than through a classical narrative, through other elements of filmmaking like the score music, sound effects, facial expressions, um, cinematic restraint. I think it, you know, it gains a lot through restraint rather than um, abundance, if that's a, a clear way of saying it. This film, I think, is brutal entirely apart from its story which is quite brutal so it's about a what what would you call him well he's it's like a hitman, hitman kind of yeah um and he goes and he rescues a girl from a sex trafficking circle and then he gets beaten up along the way and he begins to feel emotionally connected to like you know he's not a man who he's not a hitman who doesn't have emotions. He's a hitman who is a human being and who, and is who it, is it like suffers from his or Yeah, he's wrestling with his own past all the way through. Yeah, um, and I find that that's quite interesting. And like the story itself is brutal. Um, played by the man is played by Joaquin Phoenix, but the film itself is brutal apart from this because of the way it uses those cinematic things. You know, like. Um, Cuts the editing, um, score music by Johnny Greenwood, um, sound effects, uh, like incredible. Um, and so I just found this film an extraordinary kind of uh, experience in, in all of those sorts of ways. And I also, I mean, the 
want to mention the final scene, which Mm. in my like shout out thing after this, I have another final scene that I want to mention. But the final scene here is just like a, it was a few uh, months ago that I saw, I saw it at MIF and I was um, tired and hungover and all of these sorts of things. And I just Mm. seen a terrible film just before it. So I can't remember, but I feel like it might be all one take, just like a five minute take kind of thing. Uh, It might cut away at some point. This, yeah, there are some cuts to faces and back to a double shot. Right. But I think overall, like the master shot of the scene is just this two shot of a diner, Mm. a table in a diner, like kind of wonderful. Um, And what it does is kind of, in having this strange kind of final sequence, it blends fantasy cinema and action cinema in this really interesting way and kind of pushes them to butts them up against each other, this idea of fantasy and this idea of action um, as genres and refuses to be either genre by combining both of them and also by setting this final scene in a diner kind of suggests that um like there is something extremely interesting in the mundanity of classic american spaces which are so prevalent in american cinema you know since the 1930s um and i mean still i think in a lot of diner scenes since the 1930s we're not doing anything different with them now (laughs) and i find that really fascinating um but kind of in, in yeah, pushing those two genres together, it refuses to be either and is just doing something incredibly affecting and wonderful. Um, I love this film. So do I. <laughs> hard agree, hard agree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, yeah, I really love the way that this was took a typically macho story that I, like if you told the premise to someone you would be able, almost be able to predict the beats you thought that the story would tell but this doesn't do that at all it's so much more interesting the sound design in this was phenomenal it's like yes. amazingly like jarring and slightly too loud and slightly uns- constantly unsettling along with the score as well yeah I thought it was magic so and don't you just I just find it such a chilling portrait of life at the margins in America like yeah, the, the yeah, media yeah. saturation and all of these sa- the sounds and the sensory sort of overload that mm, uh, yeah. Ramsey uh, puts you through. It's such a great film. Yeah, yeah, really brilliant. Very disappointing to see Joaquin Phoenix being in, act, in getting, getting awards. No, he should be right up there. He's totally. Yeah, he's... He's too busy being the Joker. Of course he is. Yeah, he's got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> um, so my number one is also an a exciting film directed by a woman. It's his Nadine Labaki's uh, Kapanam, which I've already talked about a few times because yes. it is like nothing else 2018 in a can, I think. Um, it's totally chaotic, it's messy, it's overlong, it's overly emotional, it's a lot about the personal being made public and the public being made personal, it's all this sort of craziness. So basically, for those unfamiliar, it's a story about a 12-year-old called Zane who lives on the streets of Beirut and he begins by trying to protect his sister from being sold into a child marriage arrangement. Um, he leaves and then kind of becomes a guardian of this infant called Jonas whose mother is deported back to Ethiopia. So it's this crazy neorealist film with a cast of thousands um, that's kind of all over the place. And people have had a lot of problems with this film because it is a bit confused and perhaps willfully confused. But whether that's a sign of somebody who can't direct the material or whether that's somebody who knows the material really well and knows that this story needs to be chaotic, to be able to be honest, um, it's up for kind of the viewer to decide. But I certainly went with it both times I saw it. I thought it was extremely moving and really, really profound. It was extremely ambitious. Uh, It 
really kind of united a lot of issues. I mean, I would never have predicted that a, a neo-realist story about a neo-realist story about a pre-adolescent in Beirut would be the sort of film to sum up a crazy year of being constantly deluged with um, hmm. mad political machinations and you know uh, uh, environmental catastrophes and all sorts of other stuff. But it kind of really does. It really puts you in their, sh- their shoes. Uh, really kind of changes your perspective on stuff, uh, whether you're kind of switched on and plugged into social media or not, it's really touches on so many really key core ideas of being a human and being and humanity. There's, you know, children, of course, at the heart of this sort of thing. It's almost Bressonian in the way that it kind of just relentlessly pom- pommels you with everyday challenges just to get from A to B, you know, to try and find food, to try and protect this infant that you can't really abandon and you can't really parent either. Um, so it's... I, I just thought it was breathtaking. I think mistake. it's coming mm. out. Um, it is. It's February. February seventh. Oh, cool. Yeah, keen to see it because you, yeah, since you saw it at Cannes, <laughs> have been um, yeah, it's you just know, talking quite excitedly about yeah, it. Yeah, it's so. been occupying my mm. mind a lot, and I mm. uh, saw it again at MIF and was totally uh, reassured that I had made the right decision in thinking it was brilliant. Mm. Um, what nearly made your list? I'm very keen to see what we didn't quite. Yeah, find well, time uh, for. nearly made that um, we d- haven't mentioned in the last. Uh, episode. Uh, Eloise, you mentioned Loveless. I'll also uh, do a shout out to that. Um, Mission Impossible Fallout, I thought it was fantastic action film. Phantom Fred. Yes. Um, it was great. Happy as Lazaro. Mm. Oh, that was good. Lazaro. Lazaro. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was such a wonderful film. I thought about including Phantom Thread. In fact, that was like at the last minute deciding whether to put it. It was full of surprises, that film. Yes, it really yes. was. And, you know, actually quite a cursory reason that I left it off was that the score was by Johnny Greenwood and I didn't want to have two mm. in there. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it's kind of remarkable. I did see it twice in a week, um, oh, cool. Phantom Thread. So, yeah. And neither did you cheat and have a tie, which you could have done. I didn't. I, yeah, I respect yeah, that. That's, Very impressive. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would even do that. See, that's just the way you think, Hello. <laughs> I'm a little self-restraint. Um, Such respect for lists. A lot of people hated it, but I really like Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't begin to ask me to explain it. Although I think it kind of makes sense as this weird, compressed, crazy, montage take on recent history from a very cynical perspective caustic perspective and then just finally a shout out to my favorite film i saw all year which for the first time which is an older film but i just want to put it in here because i loved it bob Fosse's all that jazz which stunned me so much i immediately went out and bought it on uh, criterion blu-ray and it's sitting on anders's tv um, bench right now not lying um it's an existential musical it's the best thing i've ever seen and (laughs) not not literally but it is very good and um just quietly they announced today that sam rockwell is playing bob fossey in this new miniseries opposite michelle williams as gwen verdon i think they'd already announced it but the trailer came out today the trailer hit today yes um cracking one up just in a a, for a thematic link i want to say that one of my best cinema experiences of the year was seeing a 35 millimeter original technicolor print of cabaret at bologna which oh, i've fantastic. seen so many times it's like not even worth mentioning but it is worth mentioning because it was a, a completely different experience kind of watching it on the big screen this you know the colors were still so rich and the, the edits kind of had this whole new power seeing them the way i did so you know bob fossey represent yeah <laughs> it's gonna be the year of fossey some of the things that, I mean, as I said, Phantom Thread, I, I left off thinking about You Were Never Really Here and this idea of like someone's um, PTSD or, or I guess in a, 
both inability to like fit back into society after being in war and the um, society not being welcoming of a returned veteran in that sense um, that was maybe present kind of underneath in You Were Never Really Here was really well done, I think, in Leave No Trace, the Deborah Granick film, yeah. which I, did really stun me. And in the end, I just, I, I mean, I don't think it, uh, you know, I didn't include it in my top five, but that kind of attention to detail in that regard, I found really powerful and really respectful. And I couldn't help thinking of Mr. Superhero Man film with Viggo Mortensen. Andy, help me out here. Oh, in the jungle. Captain Sunshine? Captain Fantastic. Fantastic. And the Dead Brain Cowboy. I don't know. That's Sorry. it, Captain Fantastic. Yeah. Where he's living, you know, he's choosing to live in the forest with his five kids or whatever and the film kind of – he's just living there for no reason whatsoever really. Um, he's like his wife's sick or dead. But society you know, sucks. Society sucks. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Society sucks basically. No explanation why. And then it kind of touches on these ideas that he's in fact like perhaps being negligent and committing child abuse by forcing his kids to live out in the in the forest um, and it doesn't really do anything and in the end it celebrates it in fact celebrates his choice to live out there rather than actually with guns of, and roses yeah yes exactly rather than making him kind of take responsibility for those actions whereas this film has uh, a father living out in the forest with his daughter and it does confront those things. Yeah. And it says that he's made these choices because he's a returned vet and he has these like traumas that, that yeah. are not being uh, allowed to be dealt with by society and by what's, you know, kind of provided for him or her. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. So I, yeah. Anyway. I, yeah. That was one of the films that I just left off as well, but yeah, just missed out. Um, I also want to shout out to the final shot of First Reformed. So it's a, it's a great film. Um, I kind of uh, I really enjoyed it while watching it. I felt, felt very affected by it. And then after a bit of reflection, I thought it wasn't doing anything that I hadn't necessarily seen or experienced before. I mean, even in that final shot, it wasn't really doing anything. The reason I want to shout out to it is because I think it's doing exactly what the very middle shot of, uh, not very middle, but, you know, the kind of shot between two acts of Vertigo does. So where this um, embrace occurs and the camera physically, like, spins around the two characters and from that point in Vertigo, the rest of the film, you don't know whether that's a dream or whether that's real. yeah, yeah. And I feel like the final shot of um, First Reformed... Is, is exactly referencing that. Mm. And I don't think Paul Schrader's ever said that explicitly, but I, you know, when you think about Paul Schrader's relationship with film history um, and his reluctance to answer any direct questions about what he's doing with that final shot, I think that there has to be some kind of connection there. Yeah. Um, mm. Also, you know, no one, I think, oh, wait, Acute Misfortune, I want to just... <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. There's another film, when I think about my favourite films of this year that were, that, that kind of had their power in in telling a story by fragments rather than by a complete narrative. Acute Misfortune was doing that as well in this really interesting way that surprised me at the time and now I see is like maybe just a trend that's occurring right now (laughs) but can be done poorly and can be done very well. So, um, yeah, and shout out to uh, Lady Gaga's performance in A Star Is Born, which I still think is one of the best I've seen this year and Lady Gaga just won the Golden Globe for Best Original Song for Shallow today. She did. 
Um, yeah. So maybe it will follow in Barbara Streisand's footsteps and she will win the Oscar for Best Original Song. We'll see. Quite possibly. Yes, wouldn't put that past her at all. Um, anyway. Yeah. But I, sorry, we don't, I don't want to get too involved in this, but isn't it interesting that Glenn Close is maybe yes. making a late stage break for in the film that almost Best no Actress Award? Yes. We'll see. I'm intrigued. <laughs> so am I. Great speech. <laughs> I haven't seen the speech, but I did hear that it made waves. Oh, yeah. It's good. Um, so my list, I just just missed out uh, Cold War and Burning and uh, Leave No Trace have already been mentioned. I also loved Shoplifters. I thought that was oh, yes. a spectacularly yes. good film. Yes, yeah, Sakura Ando, the, uh, the main woman in it, mm. her performance was just heartbreaking. Yeah, it wasn't a dud note in that film, I don't think at all. Uh, I also loved Lean on Pete, which is quite similar in some ways to... I hated Lean on really? Pete. Oh. I was bored out of my no, brain. I thought it was magic. <laughs> Oh, it's totally beautiful film. Um, Interesting. Yeah, really on board with that. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and also, you were never read here, which you've already talked about. I really, really love that film. Lots of good consensus of strong films here, mm. and a few, Actually, yeah. a few outliers. Yeah, that we can just you crazy you know. edgy decisions. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if we can really unite behind one, can we? Also, cold cabs. Uh, well, no. not everybody's seen everything. That's I don't think thing. we all have a sh- common film on our top fives. We don't. No. Um, Interesting. Oh, I, I think VPM was right up there for me last year. Mm. Anyway. Uh, mm. Controversial. On that weird note. <laughs> Weirdly <laughs> unformed. <laughs> Yeah. But hashtag we love movies. Yeah, how good are movies? Um, Cinema was number one. Yeah. <laughs> Cinema. In our hearts. Netflix was a real winner. Netflix <laughs> was the real winner. Oh Dum- the winner is Dumplin. It's we, true. We, all Dumplin. we all love Dumplin. Yeah. It's Film true. <laughs> um, and that brings us to the end of episode 57 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. You can get extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes. That would be great. Please rate, review, and retweet us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod, and you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And we think you're great. Mm-hmm.